Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Taiba Batul, and it is my great pleasure to welcome our guest, Dr. Matthew Gandhi. Dr. Gandhi is with, joining us today to talk about his new book, Naturo Urbana, Ecological Constellations in Urban Space, published by MIT Press in 2022. Dr. Gandhi is a professor of cultural and historical geography and fellow of King's College at the University of Cambridge. His work draws on and contributes to contemporary intersections between nature and culture. Aspects of environmental history, including epidemiology and the visual arts. Welcome, Matthew, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. This book is so compelling, and I'm sure it will be fascinating for our listeners to hear a little bit more about your own intellectual journey as a geographer. And perhaps if that can also lead us towards the broader project on Natura Urbana and the writing of this book. Yes, I mean, I, I think this book really relates to my uh, long-standing interest in urban nature, um, partly through my uh, childhood experience of growing up in London, and there are a number of other cities, uh, such as um, Berlin, uh, Chennai, Tallinn, and elsewhere, New York City as well, different cities where I've worked over recent years. So in in many ways, this book marks uh, the culmination of uh, many years of thinking about the topic of urban nature. As readers will find, this book is a constellation of ideas, theories, perceptions that are spread across public, scholarly, and scientific domains. Um, And as you pointed out, that this is also very much a long personal study of observing, living, and working in these various cities, and, and particularly London and Berlin. In this book, you do not draw us necessarily to some grand urban forms of built environments, but rather the story of places that have been marginalized in memory or practice, what are termed as wastelands. These could be sites marked by effects of post-industrial, post-capital, racial disinvestment, or other social and historical processes. Uh, Matthew, I'm curious what makes these wastelands compelling sites of inquiry about urban nature, and what is the key message for readers in thinking about wastelands? 
Yes, I would say that uh, previously a lot of my work was focused on what you could call metropolitan nature. So these are um, intentionally designed spaces such as parks, gardens, infrastructure networks, and so on. But with this more recent work, I've turned my attention to a spontaneous ecologies of urban nature. And I think for many um, ecologists, urbanists, and others, there's something especially fascinating about these uh, marginal or interstitial sites because they're spaces of complexity and uncertainty. Uh, they're spaces where you can learn new things. They're spaces that can provoke particular kinds of creative or scientific reflection. And as we embark on sort of unpacking through the worlds that build uh, the, the, the chapters in this book, we discovered that these Baselands are pockets of species diversity and coexistence that are bringing different forms of emotions, aesthetic, um, pleasure, and different values that are not often captured in a more scientific analysis of sight. Um, and there's one thing you talk about in particular, which is the idea of rewilding and the emergence of animals and forests and parakeets, um, something I found in my own research in uh on urban forest in Pakistan is the mixed reactions and perceptions that people have on what it is for nature to be or to rewild. And uh, perhaps this is where I was thinking if you could also sort of highlight how your conceptualization of a feral urban ecology uh, really illuminated the path in your analysis. And then how does that feral urban ecology destabilize this distinction of nature and culture what sort of ecological relations are you directing us towards? Yes, I, I think if you if you look at much of the ecological sciences, there's tended to be an emphasis on what are largely considered to be um, relatively um, undisturbed or so-called uh, pristine ecosystems, which of course we know is highly problematic now in terms of engaging with uh, indigenous sources of knowledge and um, more um, hybrid conceptualizations of landscape. Nevertheless, a particular focus on urban ecology and urban nature raises a whole host of uh, different questions. Um, for example, this emerging interest in uh, cosmopolitan ecologies, the idea that um, cities um, have ecological traces from all over the world, that um, fundamentally new uh, kinds of social and ecological constellations can begin to emerge in an urban context. And this is very interesting in terms of the archaeological histories of nature and landscape because we're moving away from these um, purified, controlled or, or, if you like, fantasy uh, nativist landscapes towards um, a closer engagement with um, uh, real spaces of nature as they actually exist in an urban context. Um, so there's simultaneously then um, an, an aesthetic aspect, there's simultaneously an ecological aspect, but there's also an ideological um, strata as well in terms of how we conceptualize relations between nature and culture. And I think this the the point that you bring up about landscapes uh, also sort of points us to this idea that sometimes landscapes are deemed more authentic based on a concept of like pioneering species. Um, and those pioneering species then become uh, accepted or have a certain cultural, ecological meaning attached to them. Um, could you perhaps like point out 
even examples that you felt really uh, reflected um, in this like really long project about and illuminated like how is it that species becomes uh, gain these different meanings and secondly what is the role of language in how we categorize or uh, relate to different plants that makes them more or less uh, acceptable sure i mean i think one of the first things to to um, notice is the way that um, plants change their meaning in interesting ways. And this is often context specific. So you have um, plants that grow spontaneously uh, in urban wastelands, which previously were in botanical gardens or, or were regarded as um, uh, ornamental curiosities, but are now overlooked or forgotten about and have reappeared in these different spontaneous ecologies. So that's very interesting to me that in, in city streets then, you have these traces of past history and past cultures of nature. So specific species such as the um, Ailanthus altissima, uh, the tree of heaven, have passed between these different modes of um, meaning and significance uh, in an urban uh, context. Um, also, I think in terms of the symbolic meaning of nature, uh, we have some quite striking examples where um, an anti um, uh, cosmopolitan ecology is manifest. So uh, in Milan, in northern Italy, um, far-right uh, political groups have attacked trees, which they regard as a potential Africanization of the Italian cityscape, which is, which is absurd. It's ironic in the context of um, gardens and landscaping for centuries in northern Italian cities, but nevertheless, nevertheless a specific species are targeted as part of a wider kind of um, ideological agenda about the authenticity of uh, nature and landscape. And um, you also asked about language, and I think this is uh, extremely interesting and important, so that when, for example, I was working on the topic of uh, wastelands, it was clear that there were many different words that are used. In, in English alone, we have the brown fields, the open mosaic habitats, the interstitial landscapes. Then we have in other languages, Larka in German, the Tainfag in French, uh, the Perimboki in Tamil and southern India. And each of these uh, particular words hold a, a particular uh, context uh, specific or historically specific often relationship to these marginal spaces. So in terms of my um, analysis, I'm very interested in the shifting meaning words in relation to marginal terrains that forms part of my um, critical and philosophical reflection. Matthew, I think this brings up a really important question, uh, which is how long have you been working on this project and what were the different forms that this project also evolved into? I mean, I think if I was looking at the, the longer term genesis of this particular writing project, in some ways, I think it, it marks a reconnection uh, with childhood memories that I, I touched on at the start of our um, interview. And I could perhaps stick to about 20 years ago when I had a research fellowship in Berlin. At that time, I was working on histories of um, infrastructure, uh, water, for example. Uh, but I was really conscious of all these um, extraordinary spaces within the city with these very distinctive ecologies. So, I started to do a lot of urban walks and I started to take photographs. I, I commenced my own ecological studies of specific sites. And then this became the inspiration for 
of the current um, phase of work and in a sense uh, returning directly to nature. Um, I should say that um, in addition to being a geographer, I'm very interested in botany and I try to, to, to learn what plants are because in, in learning about plants, you can read the urban landscape. It, can, it brings it to life as a very particular kind of taxonomic language, if you like, for trying to make sense of urban tested in uh, entomology and the study of insects. So the, the notion of uh, indicator species is very interesting to me, um, connecting between um, citizen science and particular strands of urban ecology. And it, it also helps us to determine why specific um, sites or places should be protected. So there's a, a sense of ecologies of endangerment and how it might be possible to assemble a, a cultural or scientific argument that is strong enough to protect a specific ecological assemblage in an urban context, which is extremely difficult to do. So in doing my research in, in Berlin, I was very fascinated by those rare cases where a marginal site was protected as an urban nature reserve, at the Südgelände site in particular, or alternatively, you have these very innovative approaches to park design where fragments of wastelands are incorporated directly into a new kind of aesthetic in park design. So a park am Gleistreieck is, is an interesting example of that. So something that is happening, not just in the field of um, ecology or geography, uh, but also architecture and landscape design. That's fascinating. And I think it sort of also ties into this question of how spaces uh, that may even seem marginal are often contested and they can be contested in these various uh, ways on what is it that you're fighting for in trying to preserve or retain or let be. Um, and there's, I think as part of this uh, sort of staying with the tension of multiple voices, is it's also this idea of like a pluriverse. Um, and as I was reading parts of the book there, it seems that one of the things you are bringing our attention towards is an ecological pluriverse that is a proposition to avoid ideological politics that categorizes and creates hierarchies of certain species or certain territorial relations. Um, and you share your hesitation around uh, these meta-narratives of resilience and sustainability uh, to sort of really question that these cannot always be uh, absolute demarcators in a global discourse. So what are the goals and aims of framing an ecological pluriverse in your analysis? And, and equally important is how does this really bridge that tension of local and global urban ecologies? Yes, I mean, I think one of the main challenges um, I faced in writing this book is the the purge of interest in urban nature in recent years and this vast and dynamic literature. So one of my tasks was to um, find my way through these very complicated, wide-ranging sets of debates. And I, I gradually moved towards a position where 
identify four, four main uh, positions in the literature. So you have the, um, the systems-based approach, which is really the dominant approach linking with the resilience paradigms you referred to and quite closely aligned with um, capitalist um, urbanization in many respects. And then you, you have these observational paradigms, the second strand with link to 19th century botany and natural history and so on, and the very close engagement with specific um, uh, sites and topographies, citizen science perhaps included in that. And then the third strand is um, essentially urban political ecology, uh, which is a field that my own work has been quite closely associated with. But then there is this fourth area of interest, this um, ecological pluriverse, which is in a sense the, the direction in which my thinking uh, is, is moving. And by an ecological pluriverse, I'm interested in the possibility of decentering the human subject and engaging with more um, complex uh, configurations um, of agency. Um, and um, this also by implication raises certain ethical questions which um, are occluded to some degree within urban political ecology, um, such as um, capitalist food production um, or the um, zoonotic um, threats from biodiversity loss and so on. So I think that the, the ecological pluriverse then in terms of questions of um, agency and ethics offers um, a very interesting nuanced dimension to some of these existing approaches. Um, I, would, I would say that I haven't completely let go of urban political ecology, not at all. I'm, I'm interested in developing some kind of a conceptual synthesis, um, you know, taking the strong elements from urban political ecology, such as its analysis of capitalist urbanization, but also beginning to engage much more seriously with non-human others and the agency of nature and articulating different kinds of ethical uh, relations with non-human others. I think that's always a dense subject to like the big question of how do non-human others, uh, how do we see their agency beyond the processes that we observe? And I wonder if there were any sort of moments of um, surprise or just challenges? Um, yes, I mean, I think a much closer engagement with the, the agency of non-human uh, raises uh, different uh, perspectives or vantage points in relation to urban space. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So we'll move on to chapter three, where the book takes us on uh, the ecologies of difference and your analysis builds upon feminist, trans and black studies to assess how modernity itself becomes a teleological project and ways in which social theory can unsettle colonial inscriptions of the human subject. What were some of the key concepts that you would like readers to take away as they approach this really critical chapter? Yes, I think um, for me, I'm interested in trying to foster um, a conceptual dialogue uh, between um, feminist, 
queer and post-colonial insight. And this, cre this creates, I think, a more nuanced vantage point in relation to understanding forms of socio-ecological complexity. Uh, one recurring strand, I think, uh, in my recent work is holding on to this notion of complexity and the um, multi-scalar um, aspects to socio-ecological dynamics so that I'm, I'm cautious of um, analytical approaches that have kind of universalist impetus or, or maybe try to present a kind of global theory um, of urban change and ignore these complexities and, and interstices, if you like, in terms of socio-ecological and I also think that when we engage with ideas like um, Gayatri Gopinath's um, queer regional imaginary, implicitly here, uh, we're working against the grain of a kind of simplistic uh, modernist conception of urban space. Uh, the work of Sahara Ahmed has also been influential for me uh, in terms of thinking through, for example, applying her notions of um, a queer phenomenology to looking again at uh, basic ecological methods such as um, uh, transects, quadrats, uh, walking methodologies, and trying to think in a much more imaginative way about how we uh, experience urban space, but all, also how we analyze and interpret urban space. So it's there are implications here then that are, that are both uh, conceptual and methodological. Like as we read this book, we find that you've taken on historical archives and extensive literatures. But what was it about perhaps botany in particular that you felt was not being addressed in a geography of cities? Um, what is a sort of subject area, what is the sort of intervention that you hope this book makes in both geography and other disciplines? Yes, I mean, I'm very lucky in a way to be a geographer because geography is uh, quite a broad subject and it doesn't police uh, its disciplinary or methodological boundaries as strictly as other areas such as, let's say, history or economics. So there's a certain advantage to begin with that you can you can develop um, an interdisciplinary approach and that doesn't, uh, if you like, uh, create a tension with your own uh, disciplinary uh, um, uh, vantage point. So that's that's lucky in a way. Nevertheless, I think that the, the challenge to develop um, interdisciplinary work uh, is is a very real one. And I think that uh, one particular argument I wanted to stress in my book is that under the, the dominant um, systems-based approach, that um, interdisciplinarity is often seen as just adding together big data sets or, or uh, quantitative data sets, flows, cycles, um, and connecting social and ecological systems together uh, as an analytical framework. Um, I've tried to resist that uh, and, in and in terms of developing an interdisciplinary approach, I also want to try and uh, uh, break out uh, of some of the limitations of the social sciences, which is why I found insights from the environmental humanities to be very valuable in terms of thinking about how um, uh, literature, cinema, uh, arts, uh, other sources can be very important in terms of enriching our research imagination. And the challenge then, of course, is how to hold these very different um, sources um, or archives or materials together in terms of building an argument. Uh, this is um, a real challenge uh, that, that requires 
requires a lot of um, thought and concentration in a way uh, to try to move forward on this. But I've always tried to um, if you, uh, resist, if you like, the temptation of simplification uh, that uh, I think in the term, way that I approach research and the way I, I approach writing, um, I'm quite tentative in terms of um, drawing uh, definitive conclusions. And I'm also reticent to uh, end off an article or a book with a set of uh, bullet, bullet, bullet points for policymakers or something of that kind. I have sometimes been asked, so what should we do from a policymaker um, standpoint? And I'm always cautious over this, that I want to develop um, a kind of a, a critical discourse that is not restricted, let's say, to professional elites that can link with an enriched, a scientifically enriched public sphere, and also link to um, a democratic um, forms of environmental policy making as well, uh, to, in a way, create a space in which uh, new and different ecological ideas can emerge. So I know this book um, succeeds a film by the same name, Natura Urbana. How were the audiences of these two, um, the film and the book, perceived differently? Um, and why did the film perhaps precede the book? Um, was there like a particular rationale towards that as well? Well, in fact, um, the book was supposed to come out before the film, but books always take longer than expected. Um, I, I am very interested in using visual methods. I think that if you, if you do make uh, documentary films, you, you have the potential to reach uh, a, a much wider audience. Clearly, um, um, uh, documentary films have a very valuable pedagogic role in the classroom. They can be very, very useful, but they can also link to very different uh, public audiences in uh, film festivals and so on. Um, and the other thing perhaps that really strikes me in terms of working with a documentary film as well as writing is that in, in both cases there are um, editorial challenges and we think about if we're writing a text if we move a sentence around or change a word meaning is altered and in the same way with editing a documentary a slight alteration with the sound um, or the sequence of material changes uh, not only the meaning but also the um, the effective um, atmosphere atmosphere of experiencing uh, visual sources as well uh, which is something we don't often consider when we're just uh, focused on writing. Also, this like increasing shift of uh, that you to experience the landscape by even walking isn't just walking, it's seeing, smelling and hearing a lot of different elements that uh, can then help us better uh, approach a more than human um, or the non-human ecology. I, I was wondering if you wanted to talk more on the link towards uh, the link with Anthropocene and maybe larger uh, questions of how human uh, transformations of, like how human transformations on a global scale then seep into these local uh, contestations. I think you would like to elaborate there. Yes, I mean, I think that um, almost all environmental writing now uh, works against this um, background debate of the so-called Anthropocene 
and very specific environmental challenges around um, climate, biodiversity, also global health as well. So there's a very pressing uh, global context for writing and thinking. Uh, one particular concern I have is that the, the emphasis on the Anthropocene as a conceptual anchor uh, doesn't work very well uh, in relation to, for example, the context of cities within the global south, where I think we need a more a nuanced uh, conceptual uh, landscape. And I've been very interested in examining alternative um, concepts to the Anthropocene, such as the Capitalocene or the Plantationocene, um, concepts that speak much more directly um, to histories of modernity uh, and also particular histories of environmental um, degradation or disequilibria in a contemporary um, context. So I think I would want to be, be wary of some of these concepts that seem to um, um, reduce uh, local difference uh, or, or, or overlook, if you like, the complexities of local difference in terms of a kind of dominant uh, conceptual schema. Mm. So thank you so much, Matthew. And but before we let you go, could you please perhaps share what are you working on as your current and subsequent research? Sure. Um, I'm developing a new uh, book project uh, on the theme of um, urban refugia and uh, safe havens within metropolitan spaces, both culturally and ecologically. Um, I've just, I'm just about to publish a paper on uh, Chennai and disappearing wetlands and bird life, uh, which I think speaks to some of these questions about how theory travels between cities in global north and global south we've been talking about. Um, and I'm also interested in uh, uh, methodologies such as uh, walking methodologies. So I'm thinking about what this means in urban space. And I, and I think perhaps on the other than human dimension, I'm working on the topic of zoonotic urbanization uh, and particular global health threats that are related to questions around urban ecologies and particular kinds of urban topographies, such as uh, mosquito landscapes, for example, and how these relate to multiple factors uh, within urban space. Wow, that sounds incredibly exciting. Um, thanks so much, Matthew, for being here today and for sharing your time generously with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. To our listeners, I'm your host, Taiba Batul. I have been in dialogue with Dr. Matthew Gandhi. He is the author of the brilliant new book, Naturo Urbana, Ecological Constellations of Urban Space that Locate Urban Nature in an International Context. He has also produced a film by the same name, and I will post the link to the book and the film on our blog. I highly encourage our readers to check out this incisive and compelling project. Until next time, bye-bye. <laughs>